Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this week's episode, we have a special crossover episode between this podcast and the Uncommon Core podcast. Hasu Tarun and I will be discussing the emergence of governance tokens and share a play-by-play recap of the SushiSwap saga to date. Part one of this will be on this channel, and part two will be on the Uncommon Core podcast, so be sure to check out both. Just a quick note, the majority of this episode was recorded the day before the Uniswap token launch, so we added a short amendment at the end to capture this. But before we start in, I want to say a big thank you to this week's sponsor, Least Authority. Least Authority is a security consulting company known for their work on privacy-respecting solutions. They are a team of security researchers, open-source developers, privacy advocates, and cryptographers. They specialize in security audits, design specification reviews, and security by design. They're most known for these security reviews, which includes work with zero-knowledge proof systems, as well as having implemented zero-knowledge access passes with the distributed storage systems Tahoe Laughs. It seems fitting then that they are now working on a step-by-step guide for building ZK Snarks. It's called the Moon Math Manual, which you can find and donate to on Gitcoin right now. In fact, as an aside, the Zero Knowledge Podcast also has a grant on Gitcoin, and so that gives you two reasons to head over to gitcoin.com during the CLR matching and donate. If you're interested in working with least authority on anything Zero Knowledge related, do reach out to them. Whether you want an audit on your project want to collaborate on security research, or even if you just want to learn about ZK Proofs, they would like to hear from you. I've added the email in the show notes, or you can also visit them at leastauthority.com. So thank you again, Least Authority. Now here is the SushiSwap saga with Hasu, Tarun, and myself. So for this episode, we have a special crossover episode planned. Today we have Hasu on the call, or actually it's Hasu and I are going to be doing this podcast together. The first part is going to air on the ZK podcast, and the second part is going to air on Uncommon Core, Hasu's podcast. Oh, yes. And our and our special guest is the sometimes guest host of the ZK podcast. I know he's been also on Uncommon Core. Tarun, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I, I think I, the crossover episode thing is totally a throwback to the 90s when, you know, different TV shows would have you know, one character show up in another one's episode. I know. The universes are colliding a little bit for people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We have the ZK folks and the... Actually, how would you describe your audience? I have no idea, to be honest. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think everybody should be pretty technical. Random people who follow me on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) The point of this episode is actually we're going to be talking about governance tokens and diving into the recent events around the sushi swap what do we call that vampire attack yeah i mean i, I guess that's the simplest or the uh, sushi swap events or something yeah, or the... takeover attempt i mean yeah i think the term vampire attack is actually quite nice when it refers specifically to draining liquidity or capital from another project which was the case here yeah so I think maybe to kick off, we should all very briefly introduce ourselves for any new listeners who might be hearing this podcast for the first time or anyone who isn't familiar with you guys yet. So Hasu, do you want to start sure, off? Sure, sure. So yeah, I'm, 
I guess most people would know me from Twitter, where I'm pretty active. I'm a researcher in this space. I've done some longer form research, mostly into the security of layer one blockchains, such as Bitcoin and Ethereum. But I also run the research desk for Deribit Insights, do that together with Suzu, who's also my co-host at the, the Uncommon Core podcast, which uh, will air the second part of this episode. And I hope you're going to check it out. We'll be adding a link to this in the show notes to anyone who's listening. So for sure, you're going to be able to hear part two. And how about you, Tarun? I'm the founder of a company called Gauntlet. We do sort of multi-agent simulation to stress test DeFi protocols and proof of stake protocols. You know, when I say multi-agent simulation, think like AlphaGo or OpenAI. But, you know, previously I, I worked in finance and hardware, so I've kind of somehow been in the intersection of this stuff. And have spent a bunch of time writing some of the early peer-reviewed papers of understanding why a lot of DeFi protocols Actually, work. you might know Tarun from his paper on uh, how DeFi can actually challenge the uh, security of proof-of-stake networks by creating higher yield opportunities. And that leading to, and that's the segue to this episode, actually a vampire attack. So how mad are you, Tarun, that you didn't come up <laughs> with the name vampire attack? Because you, you basically described this 100%. Yeah, I think it's more, I'm not the meme type of person. You know, I'm just like not good at coming up with memes. So I, yeah, I guess I should feel kind of bad. Maybe my Halloween costume is going to be a vampire this year. But <laughs> I'm happy something that was meant to be an academic exercise to convince cryptographers that there's these types of attacks can happen. Turned out to happen in practice. It's now a meme. Yeah, yeah. I think ETH2 is certainly going to be, that launch is going to be very exciting because of this type of stuff. Cool. Mm -hmm. So you think that ETH2 is a vampire attack on DeFi? Ooh. <laughs> ETH2 might be a vampire attack on DeFi. It's also sort of a vampire attack on miners. Totally. In some ways. The difficulty bomb is a little bit like, yeah. So, you know, I think it's going to be great to talk about this stuff because I think the next generation of networks are sort of going to have to grapple with this at the layer one level. Wow. Anna, you run a validator that aims to support zero-knowledge research. It's true. How do you feel about uh, vampire attacks as someone who's like running infrastructure that potentially could, could get attacked? I'm Anna to anyone who's kind of new to this episode. I'm the co-host of this podcast. I do something called the ZK Summit. I do a lot of things with ZK at the beginning of them, and one of them is the ZK and Validator. you also a Twitter user. And I'm also a Twitter user. I have been cited as a Twitter <laughs> user in a publication, actually. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the ZK Validator, I mean, the thing is, the ZK Validator, we get to actually work across a bunch of different networks. And to your question, I mean, I think at this period in time, there is actually, you know, funds are being generated through the validation action. But we are obviously looking very closely at what DeFi is doing and how that might be interacting in the future. So, yeah, I would say, like, I'm keeping an eye on it, ready to pounce whenever there's a great opportunity. <laughs> I don't know. So you would only do validation with the funds, or would you also explore other opportunities with the money that could potentially get a higher yield to your customers? Yeah, so here's the thing with the validator that I'm doing is actually, like, we have no tokens, basically no tokens of our own. We're a community-funded, oh. like, all of the funds are generated through the commission from the validation for other sure. people. So like in a way, I mean, if we find opportunities where people can actually potentially validate or do something like validation through us mm -hmm. and we can use some sort of commission 
to fund the zero knowledge research advocacy and all of the work that we're doing around that, then we would. And we assume that the people who are staking to us on some networks, if they happen to have other kinds of tokens, they might be interested in also supporting it there. So I don't necessarily see it as like a deep threat, but it's going to be interesting to see how it evolves. Anyway, that's our intros. <laughs> but let's move on to the main topic of this episode, which is going to be about governance tokens and specifically the sushi swap attack. So let's first define governance tokens. Maybe Tarun, you want to do that? Sure. Yeah, so I think the correct way to think about governance tokens is imagine that you own equity in a company and you know you it's like shares in a company like stock. What do you do with your stock? Well, one is you hold it and hope for number go up. But number two, is, which is, is way more important in the normal world until sort of now has been much less important in, in crypto, is you use those shares to, to vote on governance changes. And so proof-of-stake protocols, I think, in particular, have spent years over-engineering, to some extent, governance protocols so that they're adversary-resistant in a lot of ways. Um, but no one uses those protocols or votes in their governance. Like, barely, there's, like, just no, no usage. And so you didn't really see many people actually exercising those votes. Um, governance tokens, however, in DeFi correspond to smart contracts that are acting as banks to some extent, giving users equity in the protocol. And that equity, these tokens it gives out, allows you to vote on parameter changes. So you can vote on changing the interest rate curve. You can vote on changing the emissions, how fast it gives out equity. You can vote on what types of collateral are allowed to be used. And these governance tokens, unlike shares, unlike a stock, let you vote on code that gets executed. And so this is, you know, the first people in the cryptocurrency space to really talk about this were probably Tezos in 2014 or 13, and their system can execute this. But no one that, no one really cares. Like there's like, there's a very small set of voters and very small set of proposals in proof of stake governance, because a lot of proof of stake coins are their own governance token. And what we found is that in, in DeFi, because people are voting on cash flows, whether explicitly or implicitly, and the implicit is usually because no one wants to be called a security. And so if you say that these tokens have rights to, to cash flows or securities automatically, mm. so you say they're valueless tokens that only are used to change parameters and vote on changes to parameters to these protocols. But a lot of them, I'd say, let you execute changes in code. And why this is sort of revolutionary versus evolutionary is in the normal market, if you own, you know, 10% of Goldman Sachs shares and you want to say, hey, Goldman, I want you to do a buyback because this share price is too low. I want you, the company, to go buy stock on the open market, increase the price. You have to propose a new board of director, like a new director for the board. You have to get people to vote that director in. That director has to go convince the company and the CEO and management to go do a buyback. And then they have to do the buyback. That process can take forever and involves a lot of politics. Whereas with governance tokens, people can just vote based on the amount of tokens they have on doing a buyback as a piece of code. And then once the code is voted on, it gets executed. And it's a much more efficient way to do certain types of processes that exist in the normal market. 
But governance tokens in this context, they're not pure. Like you just sort of said that it's like they're not actually valueless. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an SEC avoidance. I've mechanism. never understood this like meme that governance tokens are valueless, because if you have a token that can vote to direct yourself dividends like a stock, then it's of course not valueless, right? But the sum of all these governance tokens is actually all of the future revenue of the protocol. Yeah, I think it's all uh, avoiding like the SEC coming after you mechanism mm. to mm. say they're valueless. That, that has nothing to do with the truth of them being valueful or not. A lot of proof of stake protocols got in trouble with this and like they have a weird tax classification. I want to go back to something that you said. So you said it's revolutionary that in governance tokens, basically the votes can vote directly on any decisions that are implemented by the company slash protocol. And it seems to me like this is basically the distinction between direct democracy in crypto, where each share is like one vote and whatever the votes directly decide is going to be implemented and representative democracy, where which you would have in a traditional company where the votes basically vote for a representative and that representative can then go and do that thing. But they are largely like left unchecked most of the time. So do you think that like the direct democracy is actually the better form of governance? Or do you think that this is also unscalable for the same reasons why direct democracy has never scaled in the traditional world? And, and thus we in crypto will also end up with, with representative democracy slash governance in the long run. I think that the correct way to at least the way I think about it is for financial decisions like buybacks, it was actually just hard to mechanically do direct democracy. Like if you think about how share buybacks work, it's like a really convoluted process created in the 1930s and every exchange in the world adheres to it. <laughs> you know, it's like it's there's a lot of like in the same way we see a lot of copy pasta DeFi protocols as we're going to talk about with SushiSwap. There's a lot of copy pasta legislation that has happened for exchanges. And basically, there's no technology to do most of this stuff. Um, and part of it has to do with regulators kind of being slow and not adopting technology. And part of it has to do with inertia on the part of exchanges and companies because they don't want like the extra scrutiny. And I think that this is revolutionary in the sense that it's like forced the issue. Mm. And mm. actually, what yeah. we're about mm. to hear is a, we're going to basically be covering a story of quite the opposite of what you just described, something that moved extremely quickly. I mean, the entire story is we're kind of going to think about it a bit like a case study, but it, it all happened within a three week period ish, I think. That in itself shows why people should pay attention to DeFi and Ethereum, because in this space, the thing that wasn't able to happen in like the last 90 years in traditional finance for like a variety of reasons, you can just go and mm. do it here. You know, there's no one to stop you. And if you're anonymous, then there's also, even if you do it, there's no one to come after you later, even if it blows up. So I think that's why we see all these fascinating experiments play out. So let's introduce sort of the players in this scenario. Let's actually start with Uniswap. Uniswap is a decentralized exchange where tokens can be sort of traded back and forth without a centralized middle person. And you can also provide liquidity to Uniswap by basically providing the both sides of a trade. So you can put a certain amount of ETH and a certain amount of another token. Um, that's how Uniswap 
exists. They don't have a governance token. And so far, as far as we know, don't necessarily have public plans for a governance token, unless something's been announced. But I don't think so, right? Okay. <laughs> so the way that people are actually rewarded for providing this liquidity is to charge a liquidity fee that is then given back to the liquidity providers. So in the form of the tokens that they actually put up, not in any other sort of token. Yeah, right. So as a liquidity provider, when someone basically trades against you, then you get 0.3% of the trade as a liquidity provider fee. Is that always fixed actually with Uniswap? Yes, that is, that is always fixed. For, Uni for Uniswap, it is. For a lot of the other protocols, it's not. So this model of kind of incentivizing people to provide liquidity, that started definitely to pick up steam. At what point was this idea of instead of only providing and like dealing out that liquidity to the liquidity providers, at what point did somebody think about introducing a second token to that model? Um, so actually, the sushi swap concept of adding a token has existed in other competitors to Uniswap earlier. So Bancor, which is famous for its kind of failed, I mean, failed in the sense that they raised hundreds of millions of dollars and like delivered basically a useless product. And then eventually they kind of stumbled their way into copying Uniswap. Bancor had this thing where they added a token to try to incentivize people to move to Bancor. And the idea is that one of the kind of very weird properties of these Uniswap types of automated market makers are called constant function market makers. And the reason for that is they, on each trade, you preserve an invariant, which is that you have to keep a certain function constant. There's some details as to whether that's really true or not. It's actually only has to be strictly increasing. But the the interesting thing about these kind of constructs is that they have a type of loss that a lot of users are not familiar with when they trade on the centralized exchange. And this loss is called lack of creativity. People called it impermanent loss, which is kind of stupid in some sense because you still lost money. <laughs> like, okay. it's, like it's, not, it's kind of weird to call a loss impermanent. But the reason for this is that Uniswap itself kind of acts as an options underwriter. It's really selling you something that's a little bit weird when you're a liquidity provider. It's selling you what's sort of a straddle in options. And so you, you pay what options traders would call the Greeks to hold that position. And so people, once they started using Uniswap, realized that for certain assets, it's actually really bad. Like this loss can dwarf, you know, you're earning fees on every trade, but like the loss can be quite large. Hmm. In, in normal finance, by the way, this, this thing has existed for a long time. It's called volatility harvesting. But, you know, crypto is very good at reinventing things. So this loss, people sort of in kind of March and April of this year were like, hey, how do we subsidize this loss so that we get as much liquidity as people have on centralized order books or as much liquidity as Uniswap has? And so the history is actually Bancor trying to claw their way out of a bunch of getting hacked a bunch of times and like, you know, copying stuff decided to kind of add in a token to compensate you for this loss. So you stake your liquidity provider share and you get this token. But around the same time Bancor did this, uh, Synthetics, which is this derivatives platform on Ethereum, also created this contract that became the ultimate copy pasta of the food coin revolution, including SushiSwap, which is the Synthetics Reward contract. Synthetics-reward.sol is probably the most copied contract in the last few months. And what it does is it lets you do the following. You provide liquidity to a Uniswap 
pool. So you provide Ethereum and SUSD. That's like Synthetics dollar coin. When you provide liquidity to a Uniswap pool, you get minted shares. The shares represent what percentage of the pool you own. So let's say you own 10% of the pool, you'll get 10% of the shares. Hmm. And the, 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 the pool basically automatically mints and burns shares. So when you withdraw money, it buys your shares back and destroys them. And when you add liquidity, it mints shares. Once you get the shares, the shares are kind of your voucher for getting your assets back plus fees. Hmm. You can take those shares and show it to another smart contract and say, hey, smart contract, smart contract, I'm providing liquidity, proof of liquidity, here's my shares. And you can stake these shares, just like proof of stake. And when you stake these shares, the, the other smart contract will reward you. And the idea is that protocols can pay you for providing liquidity, almost like market maker rebates in centralized exchanges, hmm. by you staking your, your liquidity provider shares. And so that whole rigmarole was invented by synthetics. And then a bunch of other protocols started trying because Synthetics very successfully was able to bootstrap a stablecoin that has no reason to actually stay at a dollar out of convincing enough people to join the system. And basically, all the elements for the SushiSwap drama have existed, actually, since March or April. It's just that people didn't like kind of put the social puzzle together. And I think Compound making liquidity mining and yield farming a meme mm. led to you know, combine that with the fact that all the contracts exist led to the sushi swap. One one thing I just want to add is the synthetics contracts have gotten to the point where it's almost if you don't leave in the like the comments in the smart contract that's written by synthetics, everyone will think you made it up. Why? It's like a proof of authority type of security. Like, oh, you wrote your own L LP share staking thing. Hmm. Okay, so I think we've covered just the run up to sushi swap. So let's talk about how this project first appeared. So it wasn't the first food-based project or food name, a project named after a food. There had been yams. Was it I the would first? say yam was the first. The first food? First food group. Okay. Bottom I of the food so. pyramid. <laughs> Potatoes. Someone actually tweeted out that there are a bunch more food-based companies that are extremely valuable, True. such as Apple. And there were like two more, but I forgot about them, unfortunately. <laughs> Burger King? I don't, know. I, don't know. I don't know if Dairy Queen's particularly uh, valuable. <laughs> True. The point to this was that they were specifically not food companies. I got it. So, Like tech companies with food yeah, names. I mean, so naming apparently projects after food has a rich history with some very successful outliers. So... Um, yeah, I mean, we could talk about Yam for a second here. So the, the way I understand it, it's basically a fork of Ampleforth, um, which is basically a money coin with rebasing uh, mechanism. So that means instead of the price going up and your account balance of that particular coin staying constant, they do the opposite. The price stays constant, but your account balance constantly fluctuates and you know, sane person could ask, why would you possibly want to do that? It has no benefit, but nobody in the world is like, is used to this sort of user experience when dealing with money. And, you know, the response would be, yeah, it makes zero sense. Like, the point is to deliberately confuse basically <laughs> investors, you could say. So it, there's not really any point to it. But so Yem did this and a bunch of other things. And they utilized the synthetics staking contract. Uh, at least yeah. I think it was synthetic. Yeah. They just they copy pasted comp um, governance uh, 
uh, ample forth and synthetics. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I love the phrase copy pasta because we're talking about food coin stuff, but I just mean copy pasting contracts. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, so those were actually the recipes. So you had Ampleforth, um, you had synthetic staking, and you had comp governance. So th- this was th- the idea of like having a kind of coin that has like these attractive to some m- parts of the market, like elements of a Ponzi scheme, which is Ampleforth. And you have like this thing where the community owns all the coins. There's no pre-mine and you can govern it yourself via governance. Um, and where you can farm it via the synthetics contract. So it combined these three very, and it's a very attractive and very successful components into something new. And I think the demand to farm this asset via the synthetic staking contracts was insane, right? Within the first 24 hours, over half a billion dollars went into these contracts that hadn't been audited. So uh, it was basically brand new project that did not afford because of the fair launch also did not afford to get an audit. And uh, that's how it basically kicked off the hype around YAM. But the hype around YAM didn't last particularly long. I remember it being about 24 hours before the sort of bug vulnerability was discovered and people, I guess, started to like take all their money out if they could. What was the actual bug? What was the thing that Broke Yam. And I know that the project is still alive, so maybe it's not actually broken, but what broke it then at that launch? I can take a shot at explaining it. Um, I think the rebasing mechanism was broken. It minted too many new coins. And um, the problem was that some of these coins were actually minted in the Yam treasury, which is like a place that governance can control. But the thing is, because so much of the supply was actually in the treasury, it couldn't vote for getting it out of the treasury. And that's how basically a lot of, like all the supply got kind of messed up. And um, and that's why they basically had to go back to the drawing board. So that's how I, how I understand it. But I do think of it as sort of a precursor to SushiSwap because it was this like extremely exciting moment where this thing comes out and everybody jumps on it very quickly. And I think if we now turn to the SushiSwap launch, and like how that, like within, I don't know, two, three days generated such excitement. It has sort of a parallel. It seems the one similar. thing, like one more thing that we should maybe mention is Yearn Finance and Wifi. Um, so Wifi is, is the governance token of Yearn Finance. And it is, I would say, probably the blue chip kind of token, blue chip project of this particular market cycle so far, in the sense that it's just a very good project. And it has performed incredibly well since launch. And like a lot of people have missed out on this because it, it went so far so quickly. And there was just a lot of regret in the air. Like everyone you talked to so was like very regretful about kind of missing the run up on, on Wi-Fi. So they were suddenly that increased the risk tolerance a lot, right? So there was a lot more to get in early. Yeah, basically FOMO <laughs> to get in early on, on any kind of new project. Like, how did SushiSwap actually start? I don't really remember the first time I saw it. Announcement on Twitter? Blog post, I guess? There was someone named Chef Nomi who was the developer, and as far as I know, like the sole developer behind this this thing, right? There was no team, really. I know that there was somebody who joined for community soon after, but the actual initial thing was just one developer. I don't exactly know what the Chef Nomi timeline was, but but more or less... You know, 
I was in a bunch of Telegram groups, and all of a sudden it's like, everyone, by the way, are you hungry for Japanese food? And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and uh, and then then I like looked at the site, and I'm like, this thing is a fucking joke. It's just like, we have the finest omakase that you can make with your LP shares. Like, the entire thing was like reading. Like There's a menu. <laughs> yeah, one interesting aesthetic thing about yield farming is it like, brought out these 1980s video game vibes at first. And then Yams changed that aesthetic to this, like, how do you make a narrative around food? And then Sushi really (laughs) took it one level further of, like, there was almost a plot. So it feels like you're in a video game. Yeah. And I think that's the the thing that has really been the driver. Like, a lot of this stuff feels like it's a video game. And, like, the types of people who I are, like, I'm going to put tons of money in and, like, not think about it are, like, people who I kind of view as like thinking of it as a game, less so as an investment. Yeah, I mean, if you compare this like to something, like another big project that has a lot of people's money in it, which is Bitcoin, is like extremely user unfriendly and like even hostile in many ways. But this is sort of by design because it shows you that you are responsible for your money and there are consequences to your actions. Whereas DeFi is taking like the new breed of kind of DeFi project is taking the exact opposite approach, which is kind of, it is the gamification of um, basically financial applications. So there is a word for that, by the way, casinos. <laughs> like it's not totally new <laughs> that you make it shiny yeah. and flashy and fun. <laughs> yes. yes, that is, yeah, that is exactly what DeFi is doing, right? These, this, this stuff is just as risky or more risky as like, all of the other cryptocurrencies and projects that we had in the previous years where people lost funds sort of by user error or because something went wrong. But people feel a lot better about putting their, their money, the same money, into stuff that looks very cute and gamified. Totally. So yeah, the sushi swap kind of what let's define what sushi swap was or is. Sorry, I shouldn't say that it's still around. Let's define what SushiSwap is then. So SushiSwap is a fork of Uniswap. Although to start, was it actually a fork? So yeah, yeah, that is actually something that I've seen a lot of people get wrong. So a lot of people started saying that SushiSwap is a fork of Uniswap or it's an exchange. While it was really just a staking contract for Uniswap LP tokens. And that's why so many people were confused. So why is Uniswap's volume going up? Why is like the total value locked in Uniswap going up when there's this new competitor? How does this make sense? And the reason is that all of the money, quote unquote, in SushiSwap was actually in Uniswap because SushiSwap was just a place to stake your Uniswap IP tokens. So Uniswap actually saw a huge boost in capital and in trading volume from SushiSwap. That's what happened initially. And then the idea would be that there's a quote-unquote migration where people agree that SushiSwap is allowed to go to Uniswap with the staked Uniswap LP shares, withdraw the money from Uniswap, then put it into a forked version of SushiSwap but that did not prior to this exist. And that is the moment when actually the exchange SushiSwap would go live. Yeah. So this, I mean, we kind of mentioned this, but like when... One would provide liquidity in Uniswap. You don't receive governance tokens, but you do receive these LP tokens. What did you just call them? Liquidity yeah, provider. LP tokens, and the LP stands for liquidity provider. 
Yeah, so the liquidity provider tokens. And that is what you would actually take and then stake or put into the SushiSwap contract. One maybe slight nuanced technical detail about the, the SushiSwap contract is that they include an, you had to authorize a transaction that allowed for this migration to work. And what that means, migrate basically means, imagine you put ETH and, I don't know, what could you stake? I mean, there are tons of things. Put, imagine you put ETH and, and not maker, ETH and, and synthetics into a Uniswap pool share, SNX. You generate some LP shares, say you have 10 shares. You stake it in SushiSwap, but you also sign a bunch of transactions that say, hey, when the SushiSwap admin key calls migrate, it takes my shares, destroys them, and then makes the exact same version in SushiSwap. And you sign a transaction that allows that, which is a slight difference in normal staking where you just get paid and yeah. it doesn't take mutation rights, mm. like mutab- mutability rights on your LP shares. So that, that yeah. mutation thing is quite different than the normal staking. That's yeah. where the vampiric part comes in on, on a yeah. technical level. It's very good that you point that out because usually like Uniswap could not take the capital from your LP shares and migrate them somewhere else, right? So that is something that you signed exclusively with SushiSwap. It's a little bit like investing in an activist hedge fund. <laughs> yeah, in a sense, yeah. So once this like liquidity provider, someone with LP tokens, had moved or put their LP tokens in the SushiSwap contract, they started to receive, what did we call them, Sushis? Sushis. So it's the Sushi token. <laughs> I say this like it happened so long ago. <laughs> Just, anyway, but we started to receive sushis, or one would start to receive sushi token. That would then, they could actually take that out at any point and sell it if they wanted to. A small marketplace, or um, actually, I guess a pretty substantial market bloomed out of that. It was. it was the most traded token, the highest trading volume token in DeFi for the initial like three to four days. And at the time, I guess, like, you have this brand new token that's kind of being dumped on the market. Like, who's sitting there being like, give it to me at $10? So there's a bit of a really amazing game that goes on in almost all of these things that's recursive, which is every one of these launches realized that once you're paying people for all this liquidity, they need somewhere to trade it. But there's nowhere to trade it. There's no, like... Binance isn't going to list you. Coinbase isn't going to list you. What you do is you give people a bigger bonus for minting Uniswap LP shares of that token to ETH or that token to USDC. So basically market making Uh. the token against other existing um, coins such as ETH or USDC. And that's how they provided the liquidity for those people who are trying to sell it. Oh, my God. Yeah. But I mean, you have to go a step further and realize that we talked about impermanent loss, right, on Uniswap. And when you provide um, a token like ETH or USDC and then provide Sushi against that, then, I mean, Sushi is a token, you have no idea where it's supposed to trade, right? At any moment, it could like go 5x or it could lose 95% of its value. And when that happens, you actually stuck with basically the worthless token of the two. So you, you incur a lot of impermanent loss. So nobody would really market make these tokens, these super illiquid tokens, if they wouldn't get a large extra incentive in the form of even more sushi swap tokens. And that's why you would earn like 
100 uh, sushi tokens in a regular staking contract and in the same at the same time you would earn a thousand sushi tokens in the lp contract if you put it there if you had put your lp tokens over were you still actually generating any of the like liquidity provider fees from uniswap at the same time yeah you were you were, you were still a, a uniswap lp yeah, the entire time I don't know if you can tell, but I did actually experiment a little bit with this, but not clearly, clearly didn't fully understand everything that was happening. Uh-huh. Also was not very much money. <laughs> so uh, one of one of the, the great memes that the Link Marines have come up with for this idea that, hey, you're providing liquidity to this for this new token and ETH. And then all of a sudden the token price crashes and you hold a huge amount of losses uh, is the rug yeah. pool getting the rug pulled under you. And there's so many ridiculous memes I've seen of like Pepe the Frog having like another Pepe the Frog like pulling the rug under them. And it's like, I mean, the level of like artistic creativity that's gone into these things might surpass anything I've ever seen in crypto. I mean, it's it's, it's like truly the memes have made their own economy. Yeah, and I mean, it goes back to this kind of gamification of any kind of financial application, right? Because... It's not fun to incur like large amounts of impermanent loss to your LP shares, but but it's fun when you can tweet that I got rug pulled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I generally think it makes you feel better about yourself when you have these kind of memes to fall back to. I mean, so there was this this one kind of tweet or narrative that I remember like about three, four days after this launched, which took it in sort of a different direction, which was this idea that Uniswap was a VC-backed kind of, even though it's such a new project, it was like the man that like the community needed to take down. And that by using SushiSwap, you were making the community-driven version and you were actually like taking the funds away or taking the power away from the VCs. Um, What did you think about that? (laughs) All I have to say is this is a nonsense (laughs) assertion. Uniswap (laughs) is the only public good that exists in Ethereum, like other than the chain itself in some ways. The liquidity providers get all of the revenue. (laughs) Like there's no company getting the revenue, right? Like Uniswap, like it just boggles my mind that you've convinced yourself that like you need a community, which ended up being an exchange owner and nine out eight other people as like the owners. Yes. I mean, you can really like an image that I like to draw is imagine you live in a city and there's like a public park that everyone can use. Okay. And then there comes a group of activists who basically take over the park, say, we are taking it away from the men. We are giving it to the people, but they create like fences all around it and they charge five bucks entry. Because that is exactly what SushiSwap is. They take Uniswap, they make it worse, (laughs) they charge money for it. But the beauty of such vampiric capitalism is that there's always another Japanese food, aka sashimi swap, which eventually kind of took a ton of liquidity. A sake swap. And then sake swap. (laughs) Yeah, there were like a bunch more. Kimchi swap, I think I saw as well. But that one had a bug. Kimchi Swap had a bug and people got very hard. Going actually back to the example with the park. So let's let's actually say there was someone who fenced, made fences all around the park and started charging entry. So it's it's not all stupid, right? Because privatization is actually a valid strategy, 
a valid solution to many strategic problems that exist in the real world. So because once you have someone making money from that park and people paying money to enter the park, you actually have someone who is in charge of the park, who is the sole owner of the park and who is incentivized to make the park better, to guess like what might the people want to do in my park, what kind of food can I offer, what kind of drinks, what kind of activities to make sure that the park is kept clean, right? So that is really the idea behind adding ownership tokens or governance tokens to a project because it basically attracts people who care about the project and who want to make it better. So that, that is what I would say is the bull case for, for any kind of governance token in crypto. So like the migration originally was planned for two weeks after the project launched. I remember that. And then at some point, the migration date got moved up. And that was just around the time that the market took a little dive, not a huge one, but like all crypto prices went down. And that day, Chef Nomi started to sell some tokens, some sushi tokens for ETH that it seems like the community was not entirely aware he had access or he or she had access to or full access to because there was never really talk about this pool of tokens. Was everyone aware that there was like one key basically one individual who owned, who had access to this? So I wasn't aware of it. I mean, I think in hindsight, it was added some, oh. sometime later. I think actually some, some people on Twitter suggested that they create a developer fund where 10% of all sushi is created. is actually siphoned off into this fund and put away for future development efforts, such as security audits, but also contract work, you know, design, uh, marketing, that kind of stuff. That is basically the money or part of that money that Chef Nomi then took and withdrew. Yeah. So Chef Nomi started to sell off a lot of the sushi that was in their possession and it dumped the price even further. People noticed it was sort of two big sums that were dumped on the market and people started to get very angry. The reaction was odd. Chef Nomi during this entire time was tweeting with people. And saying like, oh, no, well, I have to, you know, I just I don't want to worry about the price anymore. And I'm too conscious about the price. So I'm going to take my winnings and then I'm going to keep doing this thing. Don't worry about it. Um, any theories? We don't want to go conspiracy theory. I get it. But I like mean, to me, it seemed like we had a very inexperienced person on our hands who was suddenly in charge of a big project that maybe got a lot more attention than they thought. And like they maybe had all these kind of ideas and dreams what they would turn into what they would do with all the money that they earned. And then like a few things happened, right? So I guess like the biggest one is that the price started going from like $10, $11 to around $4. And well, they basically lost their nerves, I would guess. I mean, they saw it going to zero and saw basically the experiment failed and thought oh, before it goes to zero, first, let me actually try to pull up the migration. And when that didn't work out, I think there was a bug found in the migration contract. So they said that we have to fix that first and they just cashed out and ran. So that's, that would be my interpretation of it. Something very important to note is that there was a very aggressive listing of Sushi on FTX first, like within 24 hours and then Binance within another 24 hours. That doesn't happen 
very often. And I think that furthers a lot of the WTFing. Because, you know, Binance used to charge people million dollars plus, like Blockstack, which, you know, is a little bit of a zombie project land. Like, they they had to pay a crazy amount to Binance because they had to publicly declare it because they did a reggae, right? They paid like $3 million, right? And somehow now they're just like listing food coins without thinking. Like, there's something, something was very, you know, I, I don't get me wrong. I think the exchanges are run by smart people and they were very opportunistic when they saw this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they didn't just list the the spot sushi. The wow. futures, yeah. <laughs> they also crazy. created perpetual swaps for sushi. I mean, so, like, this is the kind of, like, for years, Ether didn't even have, like, perpetual contracts on, like, the largest exchanges. So, and I mean, some of the, the coins actually in the top 10 don't have perpetual swap contracts on these exchanges. And then you get a, a token like sushi, which gets a perpetual swap contract on the first day. So you really have to th go and think, so why did this happen? And so the idea was, or like what many people suspected, and there was actually a lot of evidence for this as well, is that Alameda is basically, I don't know if like FTX is like a subsidiary of them or whatever, but they are basically a market-making firm, trading firm uh, that have a lot of capital and they were most of the liquidity in sushi swaps. So they basically went and put their power behind this project and their capital and and they just farmed it right but when you farm a lot of a token that is very new and it doesn't have a lot of organic demand then what happens if you try to sell even like 10 percent of your tokens then you would just crash the market to zero basically so they knew that they they couldn't sell their stake at least immediately so they they would have to sell it well, they were selling it, and the price dumped to fifty cents, right, from like five dollars. Oh. And then, remember, on day one, mm -hmm. it was like there was like sixty million dollars from like three addresses mm -hmm. that, in Nansen, for instance, you can see are tagged as Alameda, and uh, which is a lot of money for an unaudited smart contract. And now, no one seems to blink an eye at doing that. But you know, there was a lot of money in there, and they were farming like eighty percent plus eighty percent. Wow. Okay. That's even more than I thought. In the like, first 24 hours, before all of the like kind of dumb fund managers just were like, oh, Alameda's doing it, we'll do it too. Yeah. Which is like, I think my messages were filled with people like, hey, what's the sushi thing? I heard that mm. the Alameda's going in it. Should we just go in and size? And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. But in the beginning, they were farming like most of it. But the problem yeah. is they started selling in it. The thing is, you're incentivizing people to take this impermanent loss. By having them stake their LP share to like make sure there's a market for it, but they were really crashing it, and then the future comes out. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So you really can't exit that position in a normal way, but what you can do if you're an exchange, and I mean, I think FTX is is partially owned by Binance. Yeah, or fully owned. No, 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 no. So parts, they parts. actually have like a, a hot wire to, to Binance as well, right? So what Binance and FTX both did was list the token and all this, yeah, like you can assume that like all of the, the sales side of the order book was probably FTX or Alameda selling their own tokens. The entire sales side of the futures order book was Alameda hedging their long position in Sushi. So they really did this as a way to offload their Sushi tokens to their customers. <laughs> yes it is it is crazy
There's a reason there's a lot of regulation that exists in non-crypto land of like exchange owners shouldn't be prop trading on their own yeah. exchange, which happened in the early, early electronic markets. BATS, which is the third largest U.S. exchange, was made by high-frequency traders as a way to compete with Nasdaq and NYSE. And FTX is very, you know, don't get me wrong, FTX technologically is by far the best exchange. Like the other exchanges are boomer financed. But FTX is, is, is probably, I would say, of the caliber to know what they're doing. And they also saw this opportunity to like take away liquidity from Uniswap, which had been starting to eat away at a lot of exchanges, right? Like the thesis is the following. There's the big cap crypto, so ETH, BTC, going to be dominated by Binance, Coinbase, Kraken, whatever. There's a mid cap of like, you know, 100 million market cap to a billion that's going to be dominated by the FTX of the world, people who provide really good technology for trading shitcoins. It's not going to be provided by someone as, with like a terrible API that doesn't respond correctly like Binance. And then there's the, the really low cap, the long tail, as Uniswap users would call it, of like assets that like, who knows if like people want to buy my like Supreme sneaker NFT tokenized. But, you know, I can make a Uniswap market because it doesn't really cost anything and people can go buy it. And this long, this fat tail thing, this food coin and the precursor to SushiSwap made the like long tail seep into the mid cap where like you can have a yam coin that reaches the 100 to $500 million market cap range. And all of that liquidity and all of that trading is not at Binance. It's not at FTX and it's not at Coinbase. It's all on Uniswap. That's scary to centralized exchanges. So they're very much incentivized and they're also not idealistic in the way that I think a lot of the developer side is, and they think about adverse selection, they're much more incentivized to try to do these vampire attacks, especially as the market caps go up and the volume goes up. Yeah, so something um, maybe to mention is that in the weeks before SushiSwap, Uniswap actually had some of the highest trading volume in all of crypto. So they actually had higher trading volume than Coinbase. Not just Coinbase Pro, also like Coinbase and Coinbase Retail combined. So they actually had insane trading volume, right? I think that many centralized exchanges were generally like shit scared about them and still are today. And I mean, like you can, we can speculate of course, but from the vantage point of being a centralized exchange, it would make a ton of sense to fork Uniswap and try to drain their liquidity, but in a way that you at least like either fully or partially own the exchange yourself, right? And can actually get these profits for yourself. So let's talk a little bit about the aftermath of this. Like, I think we're still at the point of the exit scam right now. And, and people are freaking out after Chef Nomi has left, right? We haven't actually done the migration yet. Like, just in terms of oh, our narrative. Okay, yeah. In case you're wondering, Anna's going to make a movie about <laughs> are you. No, I'm kidding. Who will play yeah. the chef? I just more like I would. I mean, I would. She, she's I would she's like the narrator it. in like uh, you know like the movie. I'd know? watch it. Sure. <laughs> okay, so uh, the, this aftermath. But actually, maybe even before we do that, there was one other point that was often mentioned, which was not only the, you know, what you're talking about, the threat to the centralized exchange, but it was also this idea of potentially Solana, or like a what is it, Serum, which lives on a different yeah, so blockchain. Solana is another layer layer one blockchain. Like in terms of art. Okay, they'll hate me for this, but in terms of like their design philosophy, you can kind of compare them a bit like to EOS in the sense that yeah, that's not nice. you know, they have a few <laughs> validators and they run extremely 
powerful, expensive machines. So they are basically very, very high throughput, uh, low latency blockchain. And they had on top of them Serum built, like there's a right. dApp or something that lives on their blockchain. And there was some talk, and I guess that never happened, but there was some talk of like migrating sushi. And this, I didn't actually understand how this would work, but like when the migration would happen, they would actually happen on this Serum. Yeah, I would basically fork it and create a, a basically a fork of sushi swap on Serum. How would it then interact back with Ethereum? The, this is this is a, an interesting thing that covers many of your prior guests on this show, Anna, which is that uh, Serum, you know, I think when Sam first, Sam's founder of FTX first mentioned it to me, I was like, oh, so how are you going to do the cross-chain stuff? And he's like, well, you know, Solana's going to figure it out. And Solana was like, well, Prestwich is going to figure it out. <laughs> uh, and so theoretically... And I don't know exactly how this is going to unfold, but theoretically, there's supposed to be a safe cross-chain bridge, kind of like things you've talked about many times on the ZK podcast, which is a very hard thing to build, extremely hard. And lots of people have made really crappy ones that have been exploited and people lose funds. And Serum is supposed to actually be cross-chain to Bitcoin and ETH, theoretically. And so the idea is you know, SushiSwap could basically take advantage of that. But then is is it built out of smart contracts that live on Solana? It's built off smart contracts that live off both Solana and ETH. Okay. Uh, so like there's there's a relay contract. Got it. So the relay contract is like something that relays the state between the two. And the problem with this type of stuff is that A, a lot of the fancy cryptography people use on the new chains is extremely slow or it's incredibly gas expensive on ETH. So you can actually see there's a bunch of um, EIPs that people have proposed for pre-compiles of like BLS and, and other cryptographic primitives so that these relays can be faster. Otherwise, they're really expensive. And the way they get over the expensive thing is by lowering the trust model of having a relayer. And you trust that like there's enough relayers that it won't lie about the state transition, which whatever. But that, that's what people are doing. Yeah. So my, my point is like FTX hasn't solved this problem. Solana hasn't solved this problem. And you know, a lot of the scalability solutions really rely on good relayers. And as we all know, our friend Presswitch is the expert in all of this. And so I, I don't know if I just missed it, but did you mention what the relationship between FTX and Serum actually is? Because I don't understand. You you put them, you speak about them in tandem. So I'll get I'll give a little background because I've known Sam for a while and I know a little bit of the backstory behind this, which is so Sam in May was like really interested in DeFi. And he was like, this is actually going to eat, potentially eat our lunch. Because, okay, Sam is like order of magnitude smarter than all the other exchange owners. So remember this. He's like a math person. Sam was the first exchange operator to view liquidity mining, the synthetic style thing, as a threat. And realized that, like, hey, this could actually take away a lot of volume from my exchange. And he was the first one to, like, really spend a lot of time reading code reading the papers, because he's, he's a very technical person compared to other folks. And he basically in May was like, shit, I need to, I need, we need to build a DEX. We need to actually be on top of this because like, you know, Binance DEX is a joke. They run all the nodes. Hobie's whole thing is like, it's kind of complicated and involves Nervos and Chinese government and is slow. And I don't, I don't know. There's like a lot of complication with the other exchanges because of, they're in China. Right. So they can't quite do the DEX thing as well. But FTX 
it was in a good position. And they were like, okay, what should we use? And because they're HFT people, they were like, okay, what's the lowest latency layer one blockchain we can sign? And that's Solana. Because Solana is written with like latency in mind, right? Uh, because it's a bunch of telecom engineers, I kind of told you. And basically, he was like, I got to do this now. And so he set up the whole thing. He was like, okay, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do it on Solana. Someone's going to build a bridge to ETH and Bitcoin. And then we're going to have a DEX. There's going to be all the Solana validators are going to earn some rewards. And he set it up within a month. So like, I think in June was the announcement, something like that. And, you know, I think for better or worse, he's the only exchange operator who realized that this was going to come and he announced everything at the right time. He also owns a prop trading firm that was farming in June. Like they were the biggest comp farmers, for instance, for a while. And it's very clear that there are the personalities involved. There's kind of this like, there's a huge lead up to the sushi thing. And I think he knows an opportunity when he sees it versus like, some of the other exchange operators just like were like way too late to the game to realize that that it's possible for DEXs to eat yeah. their lunch. I mean, yeah, that's such a great explanation. And I think what most people don't appreciate about Sushi is they just look at these events and maybe see them as some standalone thing. But like with every great event that kind of happens, there's this, it's almost like you only see like the very tip of the iceberg when you look at the event itself and don't look at everything all the parties involved, their motivations, and maybe how, who of them felt like corner, two of them felt like they had to make a move now. And that's always what leads to an eruption like this. Yeah. And so some, someone like Chef Nomi, right? He's someone that the media latches on to, like the crypto media. But he is, he's a pawn. Like he's a tiny pawn in the story. He's irrelevant, like completely irrelevant. The money he took is irrelevant. He as a person is irrelevant. They are like whales basically fighting against each other, like large exchanges, extremely intelligent, well-capitalized people are dueling it out. We should say extremely intelligent, well-capitalized versus follower yeah. people. So like another dynamic that's very important is that people kind of are like, oh, Alameda's doing it. Yeah. I'm going to do it too. Mm. And this like, there's kind of this dumb follower mentality, which is what made Sushi's volume mm. grow so high. Is that like, oh, they're they're doing it? Like, oh, we, we got to go in too. It's like, there's this herd mentality. That's also quite an important dynamic in the incentives. Okay, so I think we're going to stop the episode on the ZK podcast here. But this episode is not finished. So please head over to Uncommon Core. I'm going to add the link in the show notes. And there you can actually hear part two, or actually the rest of this interview. So see you there.